it's Christina Bowling with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. We talk with Charlotte leaders about important and interesting issues. Our goal is to make you smarter and to introduce you to people with insights about trends in Charlotte. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger and subscribe to one of our award-winning newsletters by going to thecharlotteledger.com. Today, I'm happy to have with us Claire Shook. She's the head of planning services for Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. Her department oversees everything from student assignment and school boundaries to enrollment projections and impact statements when developments are being proposed. She joined CMS in March of 2022. Claire, thanks for joining us. If you can tell us a little bit about you and, you know, your background and what kind of work you did before coming to CMS and what drew you to this role. I'm originally from the Netherlands, so I grew up in Europe, and that's where I started my education and was very lucky to go to a school with a good mix of people and get a good quality public education. And then I actually did international baccalaureate diploma So the last two years of high school at an international school in Singapore, I was able to get a scholarship to attend the United World College. And there are about 15 or so schools like this in the world where they try to bring together students from across the world to learn together to, in addition to doing the academic component of IB, there's also a lot of just focus on the cross-cultural understanding. From there, I learned that there were opportunities to go to the U.S. for college. And so I ended up attending a small liberal arts college in St. Paul, Minnesota called McAllister that is very much known for its internationalism and service to society. There, I studied geography, international studies, and community global health. And then I went on to get my PhD at UNC Charlotte in geography and urban regional analysis. And so that's what originally brought me to Charlotte. I ended up in a wonderful department with people doing community-engaged research in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area around health disparities, neighborhood change, demographic change that was happening here locally and really started digging into pretty much a decade of projects focused around these topics, anywhere from health equity and health health access to immigration, demographic and cultural changes and shifts that we saw to housing affordability and housing changes that we're seeing in the urban environment and working in collaboration with a variety of different Local partners, such as the Levine Museum of the New South and Atrium Health and Camino Community Center and Latin America Coalition. I was also teaching undergraduate and graduate students at UNC Charlotte. This opportunity came along and I didn't really know that a position like this existed, but it Mm -hmm. seemed to line up with my passion for education and as well as looking at it from like this planning and geographic perspective. And so I put my name in the hat and ended up getting an offer. And then I started on March 21st of this year. So you were not a stranger to the geographical scene here, the social issues that it was facing and things like that. I think that that helped a lot coming into this role. There's a huge learning curve, to be honest, because I'm new to K-12 education, but I'm familiar with a lot of issues that are happening in Charlotte historically and as well contemporarily. And the, all these different neighborhoods in the county. And I think that really helps. 
So let's talk about your department. How big a department is it? How many people work with you in planning services? And, and what is your role? We are a small but mighty team, is what I like to call us. Planning in K-12 is, is really kind of its, its own unique thing. And we do a variety of different tasks, including enrollment projections. So we try to project how many students are going to be in each grade and each school each year. And that is very helpful in terms of financial planning and staffing allotments. We work with local municipalities. If there's rezoning requests, then we provide an impact statement on how this is going to, this new development is going to impact the local public schools. We do all the redistricting or if there's a new school or if a school needs relief or if there's a shift in programs or anything where a boundary might need to be changed, we work on that both on the geographic and the spatial and data analytics component, as well as the community engagement and getting input from people and different stakeholders on that process. And then there's a variety of different additional tasks that we have that uh, kind of come up where people ask us questions and ask for data, all the maps for the districts we produce. And those obviously need to be updated at least every year as schools change, as the political district board boundaries change as the learning community districts change, all those kind of things. Also right now we're working on a comprehensive student assignment review, which happens every six years. You said that your team is small and mighty. Can I ask how, how many people it is? Yes. So we have Carol Gaston, who is our planning technician, and she has been with the district for about 25 years. And she is wonderful. She knows all the schools and knows a lot of people. She is a graduate of CMS herself. And so she is really great to have as our long timer. And then the rest of their team is really new. So we have Arthi Sharma, who's a planning specialist who started in March, like myself, with a master's in planning and a background in transportation planning and has been doing some, some great work. We had a recent hire in July. Francis Lane, who was doing planning for Cabarrus County School District, and we were able to get her to come and work on, on our team. And then we have a data specialist, Christy Carter. And so we're, we've been growing lately and just strengthening our team. And I think that's really going to help us do some great work. I think when a lot of people think about your department, they think about like boundary assignment, student assignment, and, you know, those decisions about what neighborhoods, what students go to what schools. I was wondering if you could just break down how, when you are drawing a new boundary line, let's say for a new school or shifting based on where growth has been, how those decisions are made. What, what are all the steps of the process? There's a lot of steps in this process, and that's why we usually start about two years before actually the change would be made, just because not only in terms of drawing that boundary, but then that boundary decision needs to be made a long time before a lot of other decisions can be made regarding the, the staffing of the new school, for instance, if it's a boundary drawn around a new school. But basically, there's four main board priorities that we strive for, and it's minimizing home to school distance. It's keeping in theater patterns intact. So having students stay together from elementary to middle and middle to high when possible, achieving socioeconomic status diversity, and then the utilization of our facilities and buildings, maximizing that so that we don't have schools that are overcrowded or underutilized. 
the boundaries also have to be contiguous. So we cannot pull for neighborhood schools. We cannot pull students from different parts of the county, county or start drawing islands. There has to be at least three open public engagement sessions, at least one public update, at least one board hearing so that the public can come and speak with the board and share their preferences. Then ultimately, like I said, we need to tie it back to those board priorities. What that looks like in reality is that we come up with a couple of scenarios of what these new boundaries could look like. Then we run the data based on those different board priorities to see how they weigh up against each other. And then we start getting feedback from different people on those scenarios. And so we ask for feedback both internally and externally. So externally, we speak with principals and learning community superintendents, with parents, with staff, with other community members who are engaged in this process. And internally, there's a lot of people that we have to talk with as well, because obviously an idea can be great in practice and maybe even get, gain a lot of public support. But if it doesn't work financially, or it doesn't work in terms of transportation, or there's issues with the logistics or operations or the academics, then it's not going to be a successful change. And so we have these iterative conversations. We're continuously adjusting the scenarios and then ultimately coming to a scenario that we consider would be best for, for the districts. In some cases, you have groups of like community members. I don't know, a ta task force. I don't know what exactly you'd call it, but who meet, right? To make, to, to give feedback and to talk a little more in depth. Yes. So. Particularly, though, the, the boundary changes that are extremely complex in nature, there can be use in having an additional group, a work group with certain stakeholders to assess certain scenarios prior to it going to the public or to act as a liaison between the public and the districts. So we kind of have a bit more of a finger on the pulse of what people's concerns are, what people's questions are. And so right now for the South Charlotte Relief High School, relieving Ardrick Hell, Myers Park, and South Mecklenburg in 2024. We're working with a group of parents representing different feeder patterns in the area. And they're helpful in sharing with us the concerns and the questions that parents have so we can be more proactive about addressing that. And I should also add that Ultimately, it's not my decision. <laughs> After all, all these different people and all these different groups have, have you know, seen a scenario and, and we've been able to narrow it down to one scenario, the superintendent gets to review it and then we'll make the final recommendation to the board and then the board actually votes on it. So if they may vote on the, rec the recommendation as it is from the superintendent. Or they could say, you have to go back or change certain things. I know that these, especially the boundary and student assignment decisions, conversations, you know, scenarios and all that can be a little tense in communities. How do you, how do you kind of navigate that? And, you know, you can't always make everybody happy. This is the hardest part of my job, <laughs> especially emotionally, because I do want to make everyone happy and I want people to be happy with. CMS and there's their, their education that they're getting for their child. And you can never blame a parent for wanting the best education for their child. What we then have to do is sometimes take a step back and look at how this affects all the kids and not just the kids that are in school right now, but the kids in the many years to come. 
for when we're making these boundary changes. And sometimes you have to weigh off different priorities and there's not always going to be a scenario where everyone is happy. And I think that's really the hardest part because again, like I said, I, I think ultimately you want to come to a position or an agreement where the most people are are satisfied with it. But it's also change is really hard, especially with just gone through COVID. I think all of us in public education and 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 parents and students are been going through so much so much transition. And then introducing another transition is really, really hard. And people have generally invested a lot in their public schools. A lot of parents are very engaged and they've really worked hard to create that strong school community. And so I completely understand that creating then another shift or a transition is is very difficult. But people also adjust pretty well and especially young people, especially students, some of them get to go to brand new schools, which is which is also really nice and get to be pioneers on the in the you know, really being first graduating class and starting off these new clubs. And so there's also um, opportunities there for for students to do great things. I've heard that you are someone who gets out of the office a lot and is open to meeting with communities, seeing things firsthand, you know, driving around and seeing people. Talk about that kind of philosophy or that approach to your job and, you know, what you've learned about what's important to, to like these families and communities that you meet with. One of the favorite parts of my job is when I actually get to go to schools and neighborhoods. I wish I could do it more, to be honest, because that's the part that I really enjoy. And I love it when I get an invite to go to a school or to walk with someone through their neighborhood or just to get to see things on the ground. You know, I think that's really important to get that perspective, because if you're just looking at a map and you're just looking at the data, you don't always get that. And I think that's also why it's so important for the public to communicate with the district, because you all bring very unique perspectives and expertise in your own communities and your own schools that that we don't we can't know all all the dynamics at all the schools and all the neighborhoods. And then just from a kind of like a method methodological perspective, coming from a background of doing participatory research, the whole framework there is that you work together on a research project or in this case on a on a solution and you kind of come around and share your own expertise. And so I might have resources and knowledge from the district side of things, but everyone else brings their own knowledge to the table. I think using that philosophy is is beneficial in this boundary change process. I think there's, you know, I think that a lot of times there's distrust for large institutions. And in some cases, you know, that that is very is very valid. And I think where we can be transparent, we really need to be transparent as possible in terms of how these processes function and how these decisions are made. The more we can build trust with the public, I think the the better. I think it's great when people are willing to to open up and share these things with us and we can regain some of the trust that maybe has been lost over time. Let's refresh my memory and where we are right now with the South Charlotte Relief School. What's, yes. what's the timeline coming going forward? The new Hyde School is going to open on North Community House Road in 2024-25 school year. That's what the current schedule is. And then the decision on the boundary 
is going to be voted on by the board next February. And so that leaves about a year and a half for, like I said, all the other things that need to happen when a school opens, not just on terms of the construction and the building and facility side of things, but also hiring the principal, determining all the curriculum and extracurriculars and sports and all that kind of thing. So what that means then for the next couple months leading up to that February vote is where a lot of this community engagement takes place in sharing some scenarios with people and getting their input. And so it's going to relieve Myers Park, South Mac, and Ardry Kell. How exactly those boundaries are going to shift is still up in the air. So we're having small group conversations with people across this area, having a larger public meeting, probably early January, as we're, as we've done all these other smaller group meetings, and we're leading up to that final recommendation. I had it on my calendar that there was a meeting like first week in November. Is there any meeting? Yes. In so, Is that an old date? I had it on yes, there and I didn't no, remember. There was. Yes. Originally, that's what we were thinking in this is where sometimes timelines shift because we learn new things and then reconsider. And we just weren't sure if we were ready for a big public meeting this early on. We were thinking strategically, let's just do some of these smaller group conversations and then make sure we're actually ready. Because the last thing we want is for people, because there is obviously already a lot of stress and unknown about this decision. And so we want to minimize the amount of, of, you know, panic or anxiety that sometimes these conversations can have. So that, that first meeting, instead of November, it'll be closer to January? That's going to be when we're, when we're t- towards a recommendation. Okay. But in the meantime, we are doing a lot of the small group sessions. So I've already started last week and this week with some smaller group sessions with staff and with parents at the different elementary, middle, and high schools that might be impacted. So should should community members just be on the lookout through their, maybe their elementary or middle schools for those opportunities to engage that way? Yes, a lot of the communications will go out through the school, through the PTAs, through the principals. If you're not associated with the school, you are still very much welcome to be part of the process. And we also speak with HOAs. So we can do that to come and speak with your HOA, for instance, or if you want to get a group of community members together, then we can do that. We're working on a survey and that's going to be pushed out widely. And we want to also get input from sort of students in this and speak with students because obviously they're, they're the ones who are going to be moving schools, some of them. That will also allow people to participate who might not have time for a full meeting, but still want to weigh in. What about the small group sessions? How can someone who maybe doesn't have a child in school find out about those? So they will be going out through the schools, as I've mentioned, but they can also like me if they want to set something up. And when we will also have the large public meeting early January, then is also a great opportunity for anyone who's interested in the topic to participate. Will there still be time to like have input and possibly have have things go one way or the other? Or will it be kind of decided already? There'll definitely still be time for input. It's hard to predict exactly how it's going to go because it's such an iterative process and because we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. That it's possible that we come to an agreement or some fa- type of scenario that could potentially 
work and meets the board criteria sooner rather than later, or it could be something that's really in the final hour, we're still going back and forth between two or potentially even three options. So it's it's hard to say right now, having just gone through the boundaries for three new elementary schools that are going to open in 2023, some have just been more straightforward than others. I had heard talk about potentially building a new middle school in South Charlotte. And I know that by adding Ray Farms, that took a lot of pressure off of Community House. But, you know, clearly the area is growing still really fast. So I know the thought is that's going to be, again, overcrowded at some point. Can you talk a little bit about if there's any new anything new there in terms of the middle school for South Charlotte? Yeah. So as you know, South Charlotte's growing so rapidly, especially in certain areas. And then there's upcoming development happening in that Valentine area with Valentine Reimagined. And so we're working on finding a, a good set of land for that new middle school because that's a, you know, we have some great people who are working in in real estate and facilities and and that's their job is finding the land and purchasing the land, making sure it's large enough for for a new school in the area. And that will probably be relieving Community House and Jim Robinson because they're they are overcrowded. And so we are still waiting on a lot of the details for that, but we're hoping to move that forward in the next couple of years as well. So we're doing this comprehensive review. And with that, there's a couple of different components and we pulled them all together to make sure that we're looking at things comprehensively because you can't have a strong program without having the building and the facilities for it and vice versa. So on one hand, <clears throat> there's going to be a capital investment plan. And we're taking a look at all the facilities in the district and using a environmental index, ranking them in terms of where the most dire need is for either a renovation or a rebuilding of the, of the facility. And that is the going up for a bond vote, a public vote in November of 2023. We're also taking a look at our different magnet programs. So Walter Hall, who's the director of magnet programs, is overseeing that component and taking a look at, say, our language programs, our IB, our Montessori, how well are they doing? And do we need to move any programs around? Do we need to add new programs? Do we need to consolidate programs? And taking a, a broader look at that, not just from the data side, but also what we're talking to, to, to families who and students who are in these programs to make sure that we're getting their perspectives. And then there's then the the student assignment component of that, where I'm looking at all the schools and thinking, where do we potentially need a boundary change? And a boundary might be changed if there's a new school, for instance, like we talked about, but also to maybe shift students from an overcrowded school to underutilized school. So this every six year process, is this is this the sixth year? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. It's this is ha what's happening right now. And like I said, we're we're looking at the facilities, we're looking at the programs, we're looking at some other educational models that have been that were been implemented over the years, like the neighborhood K-8 model. So originally the neighborhood K-8 model was introduced into CMS because we saw learning loss from fifth to sixth grade. So in order to not have that transition, we created neighborhood K-8s. 
And so a neighborhood K-8 would be different from a magnet K-8 because a neighborhood K-8 is based on your address. So the school boundary versus a magnet K-8 or any kind of magnet or choice school is something that you, you opt into through the lottery. So those are the different types of options you have available in CMS. And so now we're taking a closer look at those K-8s and saying, is this actually what's best for students? And inviting people to, to speak to us about what they like about those K-8s, what they don't, and what the options could be if we move back to either from a K-8 model to just a K-5 and 6-8, or if we turn some neighborhood K-8s into magnet K-8s. And so really all depends on what the options are with that particular school. But these are just some of the things that we are putting out there and getting feedback on from people. And so we've been doing a variety of different, both in-person and Zoom, meetings and people can go on to cmsbondconstruction.com if they want to learn more about this. So there you'll see an overview of the capital improvement plan. You'll see overview of the meetings. Okay, that's a wrap. Thanks so much to our guest, CMS's Claire Shook. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. The Charlotte Ledger podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger at thecharlotteledger.com.